everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning. I'm Dr. Quatez Scott, and I serve in the dual capacity as our inclusive pedagogy lead, as well as uh, the host of this podcast. I had to be very specific about introducing myself because I noticed in our last conversation, I did not do that. So <laughs> those of you who are jumping in, uh, on episode six, now seven, uh, I am officially, I am Dr. Quattes Scott. So thank you all for, for joining us. We've now concluded the fall and spring or winter uh, terms of the academic year with only the summer remaining for those, of, for those individuals who are teaching in the summer. I do not envy you, but this year went personally pretty quickly for me. So it's the first year, it was my first year at CU Boulder. So there was a lot that I had to learn myself. This was my first opportunity to work in a center for teaching and learning and I learned so much and I'm really excited about what year number two has to bring. So of course, as it relates to summer, it provides us an opportunity, one, to reflect and I'm pretty sure our guest today uh, would, would certainly uh, address and acknowledge that. But it also gives us the opportunity to then begin planning for what the next academic year or the next term will consist of. So our discussion today is part of a three-part series exploring equity-minded teaching. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Isis Artize Vega, hopefully I pronounced that uh, pretty well, as well as Flower Darby, who are the co-authors or two of the co-authors of the recently published The Norton Guide for Equity-Minded Teaching. So uh, well, I'm trying to figure out like what names to like just go with, but we'll just go with ECs. We're going to be on a first name basis. I think we kind of discussed that coming into it. So ECs is uh, serves as the college provost and vice president for academic affairs at Valencia College in Central Florida, a Hispanic serving institution, which is long regarded as one of the nation's best community colleges. She provides strategic leadership in the areas of curriculum, curriculum, assessment, faculty development, online learning, uh, career workforce education, uh, and partnerships for educational equity. Prior to joining Valencia, ECs uh, served as the assistant vice president for teaching and learning at Florida International University, as well as taught writing at the University of Miami. She is the co-author of Connections Are Everything, a College Student's Guide to Relationship-Rich Education, which I am ex excited to pick that up here, anticipated in July, is what I, see, is what I saw. Flower uh, Darby is an Associate Director of the Teaching for Learning Center at the University of Missouri. I'm a Bulldog fan myself, but hey, well, it's okay, <laughs> the University of Georgia. In this role, she builds on her experience teaching in person and online for over 26 years, as well as uh, experience gained in her previous roles as Director of Teaching for Student Success and Assistant Dean of Online and Innovative Pedagogies to empower faculty to teach effective and inclusive classes in all modalities. Flower is the author with James Lang of Small Teaching Online, Applying Learning Science in Online Classes, and she is an internationally sought after keynote speaker. So I know folks are not able to virtually clap or clap in the moment, but everyone, please welcome ECs and Flower to today's conversation. So the first question, this actually sparked from the first podcast that we did. It was a very informal, I just asked uh, Dr. Christina Katapotis just so you know how she came into the position, and then we went in this really great, deep conversation about who inspired us 
to become essentially educators. So that's where I want to start this conversation. Before we jump into your work, it's important for us to get to know the people who do the work and what our, our, our personal inspirations have been. So we'll start off with you, EC, since you are the first author of the book. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, in terms of where your path to education really started, who inspired you, and how it informs the work that you do. And then we'll move on to you, Flower. Absolutely. And thank you for having us. What a, what a treat to get to spend a little time with you um, and your listeners. Um, I, I, I want to say that when I was thinking about my path to college teaching, the first thing I could think of was that it was not a path. There, it was not in the in the cards for me. It was not a dream I dreamed or even knew that I could dream. Um, I studied English, wrote for magazines as my second job during college, and then had no idea what I could do with my English and French degrees and got really lucky and started to work um, at a magazine and very quickly said, well, this is not it for me. I uh, went back home to Miami and said, well, let's go back to school. Easy, the school has always been a nice, happy, safe place for you. And uh, in pursuing my master's, degree in English literature, I was required to teach as part of my TA-ship. And it took all of 30 seconds in a classroom with first-year students, even though I really did not know what I was doing, to say, this feels right. Um, it really was the equivalent of love at first sight for me professionally, and I was certain that I would teach writing uh, forever. Um, to, your, to your other question about the who, right, who were those individuals along the way, um, I really had not asked myself that question. So I uh, I appreciated your reflective prompt there. And the person who taught the graduate course on how to teach writing in college, Dr. Margaret Marshall, I saw in her so much that I aspired to, to be and to embody as a professional. She was even tempered and calm and prepared. Um, you know, usually pre preparation isn't one that we talk about as like the best teachers are the ones who are most pre prepared. Uh, it's not it's not sexy, it's not fun, it's not maybe as motivational, but I could tell that she had spent a lot of time creating and crafting a learning uh, experience for us with each class session. And uh, in addition to her love of the discipline, I was learning how to craft the conditions in which students could be successful. And that is something that stayed with me and I think is really reflected um, in the Norton Guide. Thank you for that. And one of the things that you all talk about uh, inside of uh, inside of the Norton Guide is it's really important for us in terms of like learning how to teach, like learning from other people who are also teaching, like learning from teachers in terms of like how to teach. So just with like everything that you just talked about um, with with um, with that individual, do you see some of the characteristics or the qualities of that person kind of reflected in your own teaching style? Because I just I just personally, I. Uh, recently adjuncted at another university and I got back my uh, evaluations and some of the things that the students were talking about were more connected to just my personality and connecting on an individual relational level with the students and a lot of that was really shaped by some of the best teachers that I had and I sent them those evaluations back because I wanted them to see that and I let them know that like this was definitely a lot a lot of it had to do with just reminding myself of who you were with me. And I wanted to make sure that I reflected that with my students. So you do you think like any aspects of, or any aspects of the characteristics of that relationship are reflected in your own teaching? Absolutely. And, and I would say those are kind of two hallmarks of my teaching practice. One is that uh, responsibility that I take in my teaching, but also in my work as provost and in all aspects of my profession, right? To be really intentional because people's time is precious and I want to protect it and make sure that I respect it by planning so that it is a good use 
of the time. It does accomplish the learning or the goals. And then I just want to uh, share your your uh, what you what you described as um, characteristic of your teaching that deeply human and relational teaching is is a part of my of my practice in in in, in all the work that I do as well. Absolutely. Awesome. And before I move on to you, uh, Flower. So just with that piece of. So I, my, the class that I was teaching was asynchronous online and it was a graduate course, only 18 students starting off with. And I reached out to the students and then asked them if we could have an opportunity to, uh, to meet virtually, just at least so they can get a feel for who I am before we start. Because sometimes I've been in those classes as well. When you get feedback from that instructor, you don't know that individual, you haven't had a conversation with them, depending on the tone of it, you know, you never know what this person is communicating or if they're really like trying to help you out. Um, but I remember, you know, just doing that. And uh, one of the, someone in our center is just asking, you know, in addition to that, like, why did I feel it necessary to do that? I was like, the other piece of it is that they have a choice in the class, but they didn't have a choice in their instructor. So for me, I think that it's a privilege to, to teach students and be a part of their journey in any way that you can. So I, I just wanted to make that as personal and relational as I could starting that out. And it really did help out in terms of opening up students too, especially if they needed to come and ask any questions, send me an email or anything like that. Students did note that as well. So I appreciate all of that. Flower, can you tell us a little bit about your academic journey? You know, what brought you to teaching in college and who's been inspirational to your work and how that attributes to, you know, faculty development? Absolutely. And let me add my thanks for having us on the podcast. It really is a privilege to talk about the things that we are so passionate about. So I appreciate this time with you and your listeners. And before I even introduce a little bit more about myself, I would love to make a quick comment on what you just shared about reaching out to your asynchronous students and inviting an opportunity to connect in real time. That is such an amazing and evidence-based practice. And I want to commend you on that and encourage you to continue because it does two very important things that are really challenging to accomplish in asynchronous classes. You are building trust with your students and you are extending belonging to those asynchronous learners. And we write a lot about those two topics. We have a unit on each of those because they are so important and foundational to inclusive teaching and to helping instructors realize equitable outcomes. So although I would argue as an online teaching expert that we don't require our asynchronous students to meet at a particular day and time, because that is not equity-minded, what you did and what you modeled by saying, I would love to just have a conversation with you to build some relationship, that is exemplary. So well done. And uh, now I will just comment a little bit about uh, who I am and my journey. Uh, ECs and I have in common that we both began teaching college classes in our master's programs in English. I will say as an undergraduate, when I declared English as a major, I said to myself, yeah, but I don't want to teach. I'll never be an English teacher. And then as life happens, I ended up teaching in the master's program. And at the same time, in the same semester, I began teaching dance classes, which is my other passion, my other love, jazz dance. And so for me, my career has always been defined by these two parallel and sometimes intertwining pursuits of teaching dance and Pilates in the studio, teaching college classes in classrooms and in online environments. And after literally decades of doing this work, it did just become very clear to me that my true passion is for teaching and learning, less about the actual content or even the dance steps and the skills, but actually about how people learn and how therefore we teach more effectively as a result. So that is what has gotten me to where I am today. 
in thinking about your question about an influential educator who has shaped who I am as a teacher, I can't help but go back to my high school days and my beloved and most favorite algebra teacher, Mr. Mike Hughes, who really shaped who I am as a teacher because he would just brought himself, he just brought his passions, his crazy quirks. I remember one day he uh, was beginning class and he was wearing kind of a, a polo shirt that looked like it had something on the front of it. And I was like, wow, you're just going with that look. Turns out he wanted to tell the class all about the story of walking his small dog. This was in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I grew up walking a small dog before school that morning, coyote attack, he had to rescue the dog, get it home, administer first aid, and I'm like, and you didn't change your shirt. Okay, but you brought the story and you just brought yourself. And, and I heard some of that in your comments earlier already as well, that we have to bring our passions and ourselves, we have to bring our caring for our students and our desire to be um, who we are with them. And that has absolutely influenced my work to this day. Well, one, thank you for starting off with acknowledging at least um, my interactions and, you know, the ways in which I engage students. One thing that has been helpful is because certainly some of the things that I'm now practicing, it's really cool when you're reading literature, books, uh, articles on teaching and learning and seeing some of these things that are coming out as well. And that's why I really, even though it was like a small snippet and maybe a comment that some people may just say is, you know, well, that's a part of the nature of teaching is, it's very much a socializing process. But I was so affirmed in the line that you all stated where, you know, it's important for us to learn from each other, you know, how to teach, because there's some things that I could do that may not necessarily be helpful for anybody at our current institution with that particular class, because it may not help be helpful for one class, but it doesn't mean that it's not helpful at all. So certainly, you know, you're a part of it as well, the, the better we get at doing certain things, the more helpful it can be. But yeah, it really is cool for me to to learn from from other folks and you know what they're doing, why they're doing certain things, like what they're identifying within that process as well. And you all talk about that, right? As you're getting more into the um, the online formats of teaching, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Some of the key outcomes that you all talked about as it relates to equity-minded teaching are student success as well as learning. So ECs, as the first author of the book, what was the motivation behind this work and why is equity-minded teaching so important right now from a, from a national perspective? And then also share a little bit more on the recognition of this book as it relates to uh, the focus on racial equity, because you all do acknowledge that there is um, there is that emphasis while also not being dismissive of the other aspects of equity as well. Absolutely. And thank you for the kind words about the guide. I'm so happy and excited to hear that you're using it. Um, I, I want to say to your second question of why equity-minded teaching is so important right now, I would say it has been important for a really, really long time. So I, I certainly don't want to suggest that it's a new thing that is important now, um, although I, I think we're really lucky. Um, those of us um, who are engaged in this work today, because we are building uh, on so much work that has been done over the last few decades, and, and some of it um, we're so happy to kind of bring back and use in the guide and kind of validate and, and uh, center the voices of those who started doing this work a really long time ago. Um, now, in, in terms of the motivation, one of the key ones, um, each of the authors, we get to work with faculty, both in our institutions and across institutions, and we notice that there is a real 
um, interest, there's a conviction, faculty want to do uh, more and better by their students, they sometimes look at their data, either at their institution or in their classes, and they notice differences often by race and ethnicity, and, and they want to change their practice, but they're so busy, um, and they're, they are pulled in so many directions. So here, we one of the key motivations was to bring something to faculty um, that is practical, that synthesizes the research that they may not have time to go into all of it. So we do our best to summarize the key ideas from the key research. And then we translate that research into, here are some practical things. Here are some practical things that might take a little longer. And then at the end of each part of the guide, here are some things you can do really quickly if you don't have that time. So uh, motivated by faculty, inspired by the faculty that we get to work with and wanting to produce something um, that faculty would find to be both respectful of their lives, really attuned to their realities and also really, really helpful. Yeah, no, and thank you for that. So when you, in, in the book, you all, in the, uh, you all break it down by before the start of the term, during the term, and then after the term. And one of the things as you're talking about is this concept of time. And I always bring that up to, you know, with our faculty, certainly don't want to be dismissive that in order to be an equity-minded, just-oriented uh, faculty member, that there is a level of time that's going to be dedicated to it. Just any like your own experience, just going off of that, like how do you how do you communicate? This is actually for me. How do you communicate with your uh, and this both of you can answer it. But how do you you know how do you navigate that conversation around faculty members as it relates to the time commitment to being equity-minded and that being a challenge to overcome? I think it, it is so individualized that it's hard for me to think of a kind of one-size-fits-all. Um, and, and so I, I would say one of the themes that, that, uh, that we represent in the guide is attention to your reality and your context, right? So if I am a part-time faculty member who has to teach uh, six, seven sections of a course in a term to make a living for my family and my wellness, then, then please set reasonable expectations. What is that one thing that maybe you could read or could try? Uh, but we ask faculty to assess their context and their realities before making those decisions. We can't make it for them. Now, from my position as provost and in our institutions, we can advocate to create time. So we can say, is there a possibility for a course release, release here? Or can we pay faculty to come when they are off contract because we must pay them, right? If they're not being paid to spend some more time in community learning with one another. Um, but I think that the biggest lesson is that it is crucial for faculty to be realistic and to not feel guilty about not being able to do more. The equity-minded practices only work if they take good care of themselves first. Yes, and I would love to add, if I may, um, that one thing that I really appreciated about the development of the guide was a very intentional focus on that faculty well-being, given that we cannot support student well-being and learning and success if we ourselves are feeling depleted. So we emphasized that throughout, and then we were very intentional as well to take a page right out of the small teaching book and give Jim Lang credit for that uh, tremendous and powerful paradigm in terms of is there one small thing that you can do now, and then give yourself that permission to continue iterating and improving, but we don't have to do the big things. We don't have to do the little things all at once. Let's do one thing. Let's take one step forward on our equity-minded journey. Yeah, no, I, I I love that as well. And that's one of the things that I certainly attempt to emphasize with our instructors. And I think our center does a great job of that as well, is that it's not necessarily just going in and just, all right, let's redo every single thing inside, inside of your courses. 
because that would reasonably make everybody go crazy, right? But yeah, just looking at what things are not only the things that we can change or the small things, but also the things that, right, emphasizing the things that are going pretty well. So how can we emphasize some of those things and, you know, stretch that out to other aspects of the course is, is certainly really important. And uh, ECs, thank you so much for the, the, for the, the attention to your reality in your context. I think that is also really important for folks to keep in mind, um, because I think in my, my work and the conversations that I've had with faculty, one of the things that folks will typically say is, well, is it easier to engage in inclusive teaching practices in certain areas rather than others? And I think sometimes I get a lot of that more from, um, from our folks in STEM, uh, thinking that it's harder to teach inclusively than it is uh, to, to do in the humanities or the, or the arts, right? So I always emphasize that as well, is it, it really just depends on what the work looks like, but there are, again, to what you were talking about, Flower, just small things that folks can do to certainly, uh, you know, make the courses more inclusive, more active, more equity-minded, so on and so forth. And, and also, thank you, uh, ECs. Yeah, yes, equity has certainly always been important. And I, I definitely did not mean to frame it as it's not been. Uh, so thank you for that. But yeah, um, same question to you, uh, Flower, in terms of the, the work that you do, um, and, and from your perspective, particularly with online teaching, why is equity so important for our educators, particularly those in online spaces, um, important to, to emphasize? Thank you for a really important question. So we know there is robust evidence to show that retention rates are lower in fully online asynchronous classes, attrition rates are higher, and we also know that marginalized student populations tend to fare worse, especially students of color, unfortunately. And so over the course of my online teaching and educational development career, I have become very passionate about the importance of equity-minded online teaching as an equity imperative. I've learned a lot about this topic from Michelle Pakansky-Brock, who we also quote within the guide and highlight her work, that given that for many students, online is the only option that will enable them to complete their college credential, and given the value and importance of that credential to be able to help these students make a better life for themselves and their families, as we know that a college degree predicts not only increased earnings, but also all kinds of non-economic benefits, including health and wellness and community engagement and quality of living and family relationships. We know the value of the college credential, and we also know that for many students, online is the only option they have because of existing uh, obligations for family and work. And so we must do everything we can in our online classes, especially my, my true passion is for asynchronous online. Let's, let, let's do everything we can to help all of our students succeed because it is an equity initiative to teach effective online classes in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and this is for both of you because you both um, also teach online and have extent, extensive experience being able to, to do that. Because you also know inside of the first section or that, uh, that before the start of the term that we're in a time now, right? Especially with the pandemic, we're not post-pandemic, we are certainly still very much in a pandemic, but now the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has basically shown us that technology is not going away. And that even if you are teaching in a face-to-face -face course, it's almost difficult to teach any aspect of it without incorporating any type of technology or online uh, content whatsoever. So 
I guess my question for the both of you is for those individuals who may not be used to doing that, what are, from a practical standpoint, some small things that individuals can start to do, or at least at the very least consider as it relates to incorporating more technology into the learner experience? If you don't mind, I'll start and share a recent experience that I had where a faculty member came to me for consultation, was teaching introductory statistics at the graduate level, recognized that for many people, math anxiety is a thing, statistics anxiety is a thing. And what I came to find out is that based on the recommendation from the department, this instructor was using a textbook that did not have any electronic resources available with it. There were no practice exercises. There were no check your understanding quizzes with feedback in the moment. Um, now, to be fair, the textbook had a list of exercises and questions that you could do at the end of each chapter, but it was all on paper. And I was, I was rather struck by the limitations of, for example, choosing a book without uh, courseware, without publisher resources, because what this does is it limits students' ability to do extra work, to spend meaningful time on task, um, to practice concepts and get that feedback in the moment, which is so important, which things like auto-graded quizzes can absolutely provide. So one recommendation is to be very thoughtful about the course materials that you are selecting and uh, look for ones with well-developed electronic resources and support uh, systems built right into those offerings. And then a related quick recommendation is to, even if you're teaching fully in person, to consider what your learning management system can do again, to structure those opportunities for students to practice and get feedback. So for example, a weekly reading quiz in Canvas or whatever your learning management system is um, to help students stay on track, to help them stay accountable and to structure some active engagement with the concepts. These are some of the things that we write about in the guide as well. I think that the only thing that I would add, um, and I agree with all of that is, uh, as, as, we, as we write in the guide, it's a, it's a means to an end, right? So engaging in that reflection, where are you noticing that you want to improve your practice? And then what is the technological tool that might help you with that? Um, so so uh, Flower writes a lot about engaging with your students and letting them see your face and hear you. This is not a, a video is not a sophisticated, rare, new technology, but what it really humanizes you. And if you want to earn your students' trust, that is, it is going to be so much more effective if they can see you, they can hear your excitement for their learning, for your discipline. And so technology doesn't have to be big and fancy, uh, but, but just the, the tidbit I would add there is it's a means to an end. And so really focusing on what is that difference you want to make or that refinement in your practice and then talking to your colleagues. Maybe that's another piece of advice. I don't know what all the tech tools are, but I sure know that there are experts on my campus. Uh, and so going to your, to your instructional designer colleagues uh, educational technology colleagues for help with your purpose in mind. That's another really great thing to uh, to address as well, because as we're talking about the time commitment as it relates to you know preparing a course as well. I mean, all sections of it, right after the course or during uh, after the term, during the term, before the term. It's all certainly going to take some time. But when we're talking about you know the time piece of you know before the term and developing a course or course design. Part of that too is like taking time for yourself as the instructor as well, in terms of getting familiar with the, the technology that's available, meeting with folks across campus who can also assist with uh, developing your own understanding of that, of, uh, of, the, of the technology that you're using at that particular institution. So for myself, 
we use Canvas as well. And this was my this was my first institution where we used it. So I'm familiar with, oh, I forget the name of it. It starts with a B. Um, <laughs> Blackboard, there we go. Yeah, so I'm familiar with Blackboard. So for the last, you know, five, six years, that's what I've been using at the University of Toledo. So Canvas was just like a huge uh, shift in that. Now, as it relates to, you know, the instructional design pieces and, and different things like that, what are some helpful recommendations that you would give to the individual instructor in terms of one thing, right? Like just be patient with yourself because I think some people get frustrated with it and it's easy to just say, well, I'm just not going to use it. But what are some, you know, some, some things that you would offer as, you know, helpful feedback to folks in terms of, you know, developing their own understanding and, and ability to use, you know, technology inside of the classroom as well? Great question again. Um... I think it is important to keep a few things in mind. As you just mentioned, it, it is possible to become overwhelmed by the prospect of learning a whole bunch of new technology. And we saw a lot of this, understandably, at the beginning of the pandemic where everybody, um, I received a lot of questions about how do we teach in Zoom? I'm, I'm not a multimedia producer. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm an expert in my topic. So I would encourage faculty to give themselves permission and grace in terms of, as ECs was saying earlier, it does not have to be super fancy technology, but also at the same time, hold that intention with, and imbalance is where I'm going with that, with how technology can support student learning. Now we do want to be careful not to let technology drive our pedagogy, not to become so entranced with the shiny and the bells and the whistles, and this looks like it's gonna be so fun, as ECs pointed out, we really need to be careful to ensure that we have a strong teaching and learning purpose and a goal, but we let's give ourselves permission to step a little bit outside our comfort zone if needed to learn and deploy a new technology while remembering that uh, they, these approaches can be enacted for learning science. We can use tech to structure productive learning tasks for our students to structure retrieval practice and other ways of processing and interacting and exploring new concepts. The other thing that I would recommend is that we just, again, really do take advantage of those talented folks on our campuses who bring expertise and to go in, as ECs pointed out, with a clear sense of why we are um, seeking this help. Think about the problem that we are trying to solve or the challenge that we're trying to overcome in order to have the best and most informed interaction that we can with our instructional design colleagues and other uh, support folks. One of the things that I also really liked, and I used this word in our office the other day, but you all talk about in the before the term begins section, the importance of the combination between relevance and then rigor within uh, within within developing uh, or within course design. And it's funny because I was just explaining something to one of my colleagues, and then i i used the I used the word rigor, and I forget what we were talking about, but I was using it in terms of the the context and you all were right so you can still inclusive teaching equity-minded teaching i love the fact that you all emphasize that is that it is not aimed to you know take the course and make it easy on anyone you still want to challenge students as well and i also really appreciated that as well because what does that what does that communicate when you're saying to folks that you're just trying to make something easier on a student right uh, ibram kenny would say that that's a very race from a racial standpoint that would be a racist idea is I need to make it easier for someone is basically communicating that they just wouldn't get it if it was tougher. 
So I really appreciate you all talking about that. So can you just talk a little bit more about why it was so important in the before the term section to talk about the combination between relevance and rigor and why this is so important to being equity minded? Happy to do so. And first, I want to acknowledge we wrestled with the term rigor as an author team as well, right? It can be loaded, it can be taken and misused. And we know that, right? And, and so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you appreciated its usage. We, we were very careful, right? It isn't challenge for the sake of challenge. It has to be ch challenge with support. Um, but uh, as you mentioned earlier, one of the ways that we defined equity-minded teaching um, is, is teaching that results in substantive learning. And we know from learning science that challenge, right, is crucial to learning. And that's what we owe our students. So that was one of the um, reasons that we decided to center uh, rigor. Um, relevance is uh, fact features in almost every model of inclusive pedagogy and culturally responsive teaching, right? Because as human beings, uh, we have limited time and energy and attention, and that relevance is a key way to capture our attention. Relevance has been called the, the very kind of engine of learning. And so that was another reason that relevance was so important. As you know, Quat um, says the first part of the guide is about, okay, what what refinements can I make to that course I'm going to teach next? Or what is that new class that I can design? And we also saw that there was a, a really good alignment between relevance and rigor and course design or course refinement, right? Now, I know a few of us love to talk about learning goals and learning objectives, but it's not everybody's favorite. But in fact, in a well-designed course, the integrity of the design really rests on the alignment between the course learning goals and objectives those assessments in our course, and then how we support students in learning and practicing and feedback. So the, the integrity of the course really rests on um, those anchors of course learning objectives. And we see so much value in asking faculty to revisit them. Do students see the relevance in them or can you help them to see why they're relevant? We, we all know the relevance of our goals. And then certainly are they pitched at a level where students will be sufficiently challenged so they can learn as much as we really need for them to learn. Uh, so here, the research on relevance and rigor we saw is really applicable to the enhancement of course learning goals. Um, and that's part of why we, we start off the, the guide with that research and, and some guidance in that area. Going back to the, the relevance and the rigor pieces of it. Yeah, I certainly understand that as well. Um, and we've had conversations within our Center for Teaching and Learning about um, we, one of our folks, uh, Dr. Sarah Andrews who uh, does a, a great job with a lot of our assessment um, pieces, but she's done a workshop before and I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent what the, what the name of it was, but essentially it was focused on, you can, you can have, you can have a difficult course and not make it hard on your students. And that's what you all also kind of emphasize within that section as well. I love the pieces of, you can still challenge your students, but the, piece of it that's important to keep in mind is that you have to also support them throughout that process as well. So I also like really appreciated that because I think some folks, you know, even just from a, a the last person that I spoke with uh, on the podcast, we were talking about, you know, just sometimes faculty do have egos about, I need to have a course that's just like really tough. And for some reason, you know, folks just, you know, like I love the fact that I have these really difficult courses, um, but at the same time too, keeping that in mind that it's not necessarily an equity-minded approach if we're not also taking into consideration, you know, how we're making it difficult for students. But we also, you know, from an equity-minded perspective, also want to 
acknowledge that, um, you know, who is oftentimes being disadvantaged by the structures of that while also not making generalizations about students. So I do talk about that as well. You know, it's important for us to take into consideration certain social identities that our students have without making a generalization about our students. So for me, the emphasis is always about how are we familiarizing ourselves with the needs of collectively our students in terms of in terms of classes, but then also the individual needs of, of our students as well. And some of that also is, 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 a, is a part of this next question, which is instructor autonomy, because I also love the fact, I don't know if you all wrote this book for me, in terms of being able to help and answer questions on our campus, because we get instructors who are either adjunct or you know fully tenured, we, we have those individuals, but we also have a, a high number of, of TAs or graduate teaching, teaching assistants and the difficulty with them is that they just don't have as much autonomy and even adjuncts uh, don't oftentimes have as much autonomy as you know a full professor at the university but you all were talking about again some of the small things that even those folks who don't have as much autonomy are able to do so i i'll just throw this to you ecs and then flower i'll, I'll give you the other piece of it so ecs can you talk a little bit about what recommendations that you could offer from an instructor to a TA or an adjunct about things to consider in terms of helping to empower them with their uh, with their ability to teach within the course and and how they can structure the course and then flower to you the you know conversely or reversely from that so from the TA to the uh, to to a full you know instructor or, or tenured professor, what are some things that you would offer to those individuals in terms of some recommendations or some considerations to empower them inside of those classroom spaces? So, Isis, we'll go with you. Start. We'll start you off. We'll start off with you. Sure. Um, I think sometimes we we don't stop to pause to say what what is my sphere of influence? Like where do I have agency? So I would say starting with that reflective question, right? So if uh, I supported many graduate students, it was my first uh, priority in a center for teaching was to support graduate students. And, and so they would say, well, you know, this I'm supporting this person. They designed the class. I'm just doing grading or I'm just doing discussion sessions. There's no just, right? If you have time alone with students, that is your sphere of influence. How do you design that time? How do you empower students? How do you connect with them and communicate to them that you absolutely believe in their potential and want them to be successful? Um, so, so noticing where your sphere of influence is. One of the points that we talk about early in the guide is somebody might hand you a set of course learning objectives and say, go, you can't touch them. You can't manipulate them. Okay, I think that's you know sad, but I understand that that, that is some, a lot of uh, it's reality. So then how do you then talk to your students on that first day of class or in that welcome video to say, hey, you might have seen in the syllabus that, right, as a result of this course, X, Y, Z. And here, let me tell you why, what that means or why that matters or how um, you can connect to those and they're going to make a difference in your future goals, life, career. So even talking through a set of predetermined unchangeable learning objectives can be really empowering to students because unless they see why this course will be valuable to them, it's very hard for students to invest their time. So I guess the, the, the idea there is notice where do you have some influence? Is it in grading, in feedback, in one-on-one -on -one conversations with students, in a discussion session? But wherever you have the, the flexibility and the autonomy, use it to validate, to empower, and to motivate students. 
No, thank you with that. Thank you for that. And one of the things I also try to, you know, communicate with our graduate students, particularly, is that if you notice something, you could still say something. So, you know, some of that, right, you know, you have a lot of the instructors or the full-time faculty members who may have a lot more of the actual power to determine whether or not you can change certain things. But for some of us, you know, diversity is also about acknowledging that it makes us more creative, innovative, and we can also observe or identify some challenges that folks who may not have certain identities may not also recognize. So that may not necessarily be something that you observe as a challenge or a limitation, may be something that quite literally was just oblivious to that person. So it doesn't mean don't bring it up whatsoever. Uh, I would certainly at the very least communicate those things and then see if there's an opportunity to work together to uh, to redress some of uh, some of that some of the challenges or the limitations with whatever that particularly is. So now I appreciate that, uh, Flower. Yes, thank you. And again, I just actually want to comment briefly on what you just mentioned here, and that is the importance of recognizing that each and every single one of us is on our own equity journey. And when I joined this author team, when I, when I had the amazing um, opportunity to join the team, I knew that I had a lot to learn about equity from my brilliant co-authors. And uh, I'm very grateful that they welcomed me in based on my areas of expertise, but also I came into that with a very um, keen sense, a very humble sense of how much I still have to learn. And so I do think that uh, even as you were saying, as TAs or as um, adjunct folks, we may have an opportunity to ask questions, recognizing that our colleagues may be at a different point on their equity journey. Maybe, as you mentioned, they may not even be aware. And I, that has certainly happened to me, where I have not been aware of something that I was doing or saying that was causing harm. And so the opportunity to be brave and say something or ask something really is an equity-minded approach as well as we seek to um, develop awareness across our you know, relationships and networks. Now, that said, um, related to what, I, you know, I, it's not dissimilar to the way that ECs answered this question, and that is what your students really want and the value that they get out of the classes that they are taking is your individual expertise, your guidance, your passion, and your availability and your connection with them. So oftentimes I'm asked, you know, what happens if I'm teaching a class that is, again, maybe it's already pre-built at the college level, or maybe I'm using a, a publisher courseware that is the whole entire thing is designed. And how do I interact with students? There's nothing that I need to do. And I certainly encourage folks to look for those moments of interaction, to send those encouraging announcements, even if the rest of the course is already all built uh, or defined bring yourself, bring your passion, your experience, your stories. Um, and that's where you're going to be able to help students kind of continue to remain motivated to persist through, maybe it's a fully um, asynchronous online class, whatever that might be. Bring yourself, look for those opportunities to connect with students. Uh, love the idea of the informal videos, the smartphone video even. Um, I have a, a favorite memory of an online instructor in California who was recording herself with her smartphone while she was filling up her car with gasoline. Hey, I was just thinking about you all and I just wanted to remind you. And <laughs> so I do encourage that very relational, very um, honest uh, approach, even when much of the course decisions have been made for you. Thank you very much. And before we get out of here, there was one thing that you uh, you stated that you had uh, maybe another comment on the concept of rigor. So I think I kind of moved on before you were ready to jump in there. But uh, do you have any uh, additional comments with that, Flower? Yeah, absolutely. And I did just want to circle back and um, thank you for the opportunity and the time. 
as a team, as EC's mentioned, we really did wrestle long and hard with whether to even use the R word <laughs> as we talked about rigor. And one thing that became very clear for me is that we are not doing any of our students any service. We are doing our students a disservice if in the name of equity or inclusive teaching, we end up lowering our standards to any sense. If we pass our students out of our classes and they're going into the next class in their program or their major, or they're getting out there on the job, and they don't have the knowledge that they need, that is not equity-minded teaching. So just this, another way of thinking about it, that we are doing our students a disservice if we lower our standards. As ECs emphasize, we maintain our standards and we provide appropriate support. And there's more on that in the guide. Awesome. Thank you very much. And before we, this is the last thing that we'll talk about. Um, and I, I was, as I was getting ready to, to wrap it up, I was like, wait, we we're talking about before the term starts, we did not talk. You cannot plan for your semester or the course without talking about the syllabus. So as folks are, as folks are in the summer thinking about their courses, learning objectives, goals, and everything else, what are some, using flowers language, some small things that folks can be thinking about or considering as it relates to that next syllabus? I would say, um, you know, we're not here to promote the guide, but the faculty reviewers told us this was one of the sections they really, really appreciated the most because they could see those little things they could do. So the syllabus part of the guide goes section by section, even from like your name to a description of the course to a statement around, right, accessibility, goes little chunk by chunk, learn um, uh, textbooks and other materials. And it says like, what about this? So I'll, I'll share one. If you don't tell students anything about yourself currently in your syllabus, then consider adding a couple of uh, sentences, a, a bulleted list of your hobbies or who you are or what. Make yourself human and three-dimensional so you're not just Dr. or Mr. so-and-so who um, really doesn't, you know, doesn't help to establish that trust and rapport. So um, maybe changing the heading of a section. So instead of course learning objectives, what are you going to uh, learn how to do as a result of this course? Little things that you can do that makes it more um, relational, that, that makes the tone more less formal and invites students to learn with you. Uh, lots and lots of suggestions there that take almost no time uh, to implement. I would add one quick thing, and, and again, in the same line, in terms of just looking for ways to warm up the language of your syllabus. Um, if you look at your syllabi and notice that it looks like it was written by a machine or an academic committee, look for places that you can begin to inject your own voice and warm up your tone. The literature is very supportive of the impact that that makes on student success. As I came across that section as well, I ended up pulling up my syllabus. So yeah, I definitely concur with the folks who, re who reviewed that, but it was super helpful for me because a lot of other folks, when they're talking about looking at the syllabus, there are certain recommendations that folks that you that you will generally see, which is related to diversity statements and, you know, offering what resources are available and, you know, different things. But just the breakdown of the language piece of it and really, you know, presenting it as if you're talking to a human <laughs> because you can still communicate the same thing. Well, you can still say the same thing without saying it in the same way. So I really appreciated that as well because it actually helped me. I pulled up my syllabus and then I was just like. I feel like I would be talking to somebody who's been teaching for like 40 years uh, and this is my first year. So <laughs> how can I do a better job of just like being being more personable with students um, as well as being more approachable with students as well? Thank you to so much for joining us here. I really enjoyed my time with you all. I feel like I'm talking to two rock stars who wrote a book just perfectly for me. But again, folks who are listening in, Certainly you can, you can download the Norton Guide for Equity-Minded Teaching online. That would be free. 
or you can do what I did, which is also to support them and purchase a physical copy of the book as well, because me and myself, I like to just pull things off of off of the bookshelf and just open it up and read it myself. But thank you too so much. Appreciate appreciated having both of you on the show and looking forward to speaking with uh, with Brian as well as oh remind me of her name. I don't want to Maze. mess it up. Maze. Maze. I was gonna raise, oh so I was gonna say Maze's last name. Thank you very much for that. So looking forward to talking to uh, to those two uh, to finish out this summer as well. So thank you all very much for your time here today. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you so much. And thanks to your <laughs> listeners for all the great work that you do. It, it is really making an enormous difference. Yes. Thank you again for having us. Thanks for tuning in and listening as well and thinking about the importance of these things.